Hi, my name is Andrew Chamberlain and I'm a writer and creative writing tutor and you are listening to episode 5 of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. In these podcasts so far, I've been talking about the techniques we can use to help us show rather than tell the reader what's going on in our work. And in this episode, I want to focus on another one of those techniques and that is hinting, implying or suggesting something rather than just saying it outright. Before I get into this, I'd like to briefly mention a couple of writing events that I'm going to be involved in over the next couple of months. On Saturday, April the 12th, I'll be speaking at the Writers World Conference, organised by Writers Essentials. That will be in Cambridge, England. And you can check their details at the website, which is www.writersessentials.com. The following month, I'm going to be at Lee Abbey in Devon from May 19th to the 23rd for their writer's conference titled So You Want to See Your Book in Print. And you can find out details about that at www.leeabbey.org.uk. Go check out those events if you're interested. I'm looking forward to presenting some material and learning from other speakers there. So let's get back to the power of implying, hinting and suggesting. The context for this technique is the fact that if you can hint at something in your work and your reader picks up that hint and understands what you're saying, then they will feel as if they have a strong bond of understanding with you as the author and with your story and you will have taken a big step to hooking and keeping them. And the effect will be much greater than if you just told them something outright. Now the challenge of course is that they need to actually understand what you're saying, they need to take the hint, get the suggestion and they need to be able to do a little bit of work to get there. So it mustn't be obvious, it mustn't be straightforward. And I'm going to explore two broad types of this sort of hinting in the episode today. The first one occurs when the writer presents something about a character or a situation and we're meant to infer something else from what they say and we're meant to do that for this moment in the story. So it's an effect which applies immediately. The second example is where the writer hints or suggests that something and its significance will only become apparent later on in the story. The effect is for the future and that technique is usually referred to as foreshadowing. So let's start with some examples of hints or suggestions that are supposed to be telling the reader something at that point in the story. And as usual I've got a number of examples for you. My first comes from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and in that novel Austen explores the social and cultural contexts of middle and upper class England at the time of writing which is at the turn of the 19th century and amongst the characters she introduces we have the formidable and proud Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Although Lady Catherine is talked about early on in the novel it is at this particular point that I'm going to read the passage out that Jane Austen actually introduces the character. So in this scene Elizabeth Bennet the protagonist and some other people have arrived as visitors at Lady Catherine's house and she has just received them. Lady Catherine was a tall, large woman with strongly marked features, which might once have been handsome. Her air was not conciliating, nor was her manner of receiving them such as to make her visitors forget their inferior rank. She was not rendered formidable by silence, but whatever she said was spoken in so authoritative a tone as marked her self-importance. So what is the writer doing here? Well, let's have a look at three short phrases from this piece. 
a tall, large woman with strongly marked features. So for me, this implies quite an imposing woman, maybe somebody who is used to intimidating others. The term strongly marked suggests to me somebody who perhaps is used to scowling or looking disapprovingly at others. Let's consider this little phrase, which might once have been handsome. I do wonder whether only a female writer could put down one of her own female characters with such a deft turn of phrase. Lady Catherine is clearly past her best, however good her best was in the past. Now let's consider this phrase. She was not rendered formidable by silence, but whatever she said was spoken in so authoritative a tone as marked her self-importance. Here is someone who is not notable because they hold themselves in silence, but rather because we have a character here who hammers her opinion home. So not only is she proud and arrogant and very happy to tell her opinion to anybody, but she probably isn't a very wise person either. So from this paragraph, we get a very good idea of just what Lady Catherine is like, explicitly through what the author tells us directly and implicitly through the things that she is suggesting. My second example is in fact a theme from another classic novel, and that is Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. In this book, prisoner Jean Valjean has a number, 24601, and this number is used by his nemesis, the police inspector Javert, to demean Valjean, to try to reduce his status from man to merely number. And what we see inferred in this theme is the rivalry, contempt, even jealousy of the police inspector. He uses the number to try and crush the spirit and dignity out of Jean Valjean. My third example, again, is from Pride and Prejudice. This is an example which shows us how implying something or hinting at it can tell the reader about the scene and social context. I'd like to read you a passage which is the introduction of Mr. Darcy, the dashing and rich love interest of our protagonist in the novel. And this example shows what we learn through both what we're told and what is implied. Here's the passage. Mr. Darcy soon drew the attention of the room by his fine, tall person, handsome features, noble mind, and the report, which was in general circulation within five minutes after his entrance, of his having 10,000 a year. So let's explore what's being implied here. Well, what's not been implied is that he's handsome, because we're told that, and what's not been implied as well is that he's rich, because we're told that. Both of those things are explicitly told us. But what is implied is that he has the charisma to make people in this room notice him, to make people talk about him. What Austin also shows us is just how important income and wealth is to the social politics of the novel. Darcy's income is not implied or suggested, that's explicitly stated, but the importance of it is implied by the fact that everyone in the room is talking about it within five minutes. And I hope you notice how much more of an effect the passage had by implying the importance of money and implying the importance of how much income this man has, rather than the author just saying it outright. Here's one last example from a very different and more contemporary book. This is from City of Bones by Cassandra Clare. In this book, one of the characters, Jace, is a hunter of demons. Here's how the protagonist, Clary, perceives him. Jace raised his head and smiled. There was something fierce about the gesture, something that reminded Clary of documentaries she'd watched about lions on the Discovery Channel, the way the big cats would raise their heads and sniff the air for prey. Do you see how Jace's aptitude for the hunt and his awareness of what's going on around him and the hunger that he has as a predator comes through this passage? It's not stated explicitly, but it's implied. So because we pick it up as an implication, we get a very strong understanding of 
of that aspect of Jace's character. From this example we see his motivation and the scene is also set for some of the conflict which is to come. So I hope you see that a subtle and successful inference can do more than pages of description. It can achieve that precious goal of making a character realizable and identifiable for your reader. It can make a scene come to life. It can create a whole setting or mood or theme. It can generate tension for your work. So now let's look at the other use of inference or suggestion, and that is to point to something that's going to happen later in the story. As I said earlier, this is often referred to as foreshadowing. In this case, the writer wants to communicate something to the reader about what is to come in the book, and it's a technique that's been used to great effect by murder or mystery writers. And foreshadowing can also give us a clue about the motives of characters, as well as what might happen. It can set the tone for a scene, or even the whole book. And my first example comes from a book which is probably used more than any other to show this technique and that is John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. Published in 1937, it tells the story of George Milton and Lenny Small, two ranch workers drifting around looking for work. The backdrop of the novel is the Great Depression in America. George is the smarter one. His friend Lenny has some mental impairment but is very physically strong and has a good nature. In the first chapter we find that Lenny has a mouse in his pocket which was alive but is now dead. Here's how Steinbeck describes the situation in that chapter. George looked sharply at him. What do you take out of that pocket? Ain't a thing in my pocket, Lenny said cleverly. I know there ain't. You've got it in your hand. What you got in your hand? Hiding it. I ain't got nothing, George. Honest. Come on, give it here. Lenny held his closed hand away from George's direction. It's only a mouse, George. A mouse? A live mouse? Uh-huh. Just a dead mouse, George. I didn't kill it. Honest, I found it. I found it dead. Give it here, said George. Oh, leave me, have it, George. Give it here. Lenny's closed hand slowly opened. George took the mouse and threw it across the pool to the other side among the brush. What do you want of a dead mouse anyways? I could pet it with my thumb while I was walking along, said Lenny. Well, you ain't petting no mice while you walk with me. You remember where we're going now? Lenny looked startled and then in embarrassment hid his face against his knees. I forgot again. This death of the mouse foreshadows a number of other deaths that occur in the book later on, all of them the fault of Lenny. So even in this first chapter, we're getting a hint of one of the themes that we're going to see throughout the whole book. My second example of foreshadowing comes from The Lord of the Rings, and this one is courtesy of Wikipedia, so you can go and look it up yourself later on if you want to. In this passage, Frodo is talking to the wizard Gandalf, and the subject of their conversation is mercy and perhaps the consequences of it. What a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature Gollum when he had the chance. Pity, said Gandalf. It was pity that stayed his hand. Many that live deserve death. And some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that he has some part to play yet, for good or ill, before the end. And when that comes, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many, yours not least. This conversation foreshadows the fact that later in the story, Frodo himself pities Gollum and is unable to kill him. And in showing this mercy, he allows Gollum to live so that Gollum will play a key role in destroying the ring. So I hope these examples have given you some awareness and some insight to how you can use inference and suggestion and hinting, both to show something in your work immediately and also to point to something, some theme that will come later on. 
And I don't want you to be put off by the fact that I've quoted from some great writers today because any of us can practice this technique and apply it in our writing. It takes some discipline and imagination, but you can do it. So what can we conclude about this technique? I want to give you some hints and some tips as you apply it yourself in your own writing. First of all, don't be too obvious. Your reader needs to get what you're saying without feeling like it's being shoved at them or served to them on a plate. In practice, this means that foreshadowing or hinting needs to blend seamlessly with the story. And the art of the whole thing is to judge how you can say something which is not going to leave the reader confused and disconnected from what you're trying to say, but is also subtle enough for them to have to do a little bit of work to get it. The second point I want to make is this. You need to fulfill your bargain with the reader. And what I mean by that is if you hint at something, if you hint at some sinister backstory to your character, then don't make them relentlessly jolly and transparent for the rest of your work. The playwright Anton Chekhov said this. Remove everything that has no relevance to the play. If you say in the first act that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third act it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. And what Chekhov says about drama is be true also for creative writing. If your protagonist turns up at an out-of-town motel to find it run by a sinister and mysterious proprietor, that proprietor had better do something sinister and mysterious by the time you've finished, or your reader is going to feel cheated. Finally, remember that what might be obvious to you could in fact be quite a struggle for your readers. So when you come up with a hint or a suggestion, if you possibly can, test it out with beta readers and others who are reviewing your work. So today we've looked at one aspect of showing rather than telling and that's hinting, implying or suggesting. And we've looked at two kinds of this effect. The first one occurs when the writer presents details which are meant to infer something immediately. The effect is for now. The second is where the writer hints or implies or suggests something that points to something coming in the future. So the effect is for later on in the work, and this is usually called foreshadowing. And in this podcast, I have referred to the following works. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, which is in the public domain, but is also published by Penguin Books. Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, which is in the public domain, but also published by Wordsworth Classics. City of Bones by Cassandra Clare, which is published by Walker Books Limited. Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, published by Penguin, and The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, published by HarperCollins, and the film version was made by Wingnut Films and distributed by New Line Cinema. If you've enjoyed the Creative Writers Tool Belt, please do join our group on Goodreads. That's www.goodreads.com and just look up the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Please do leave any comments or suggestions. You can reach me at my website, which is www.andrewjchamberlain.com. My thanks to the guys at Podcast Themes for providing the theme music and thank you to you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.